world? Are people making the moves that they're making? Like, what makes you... And by the way, first, let's just, let's just do some education here, okay? There's three lanes out there. And, 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 and there's a reason there's three lanes. You have a slow lane. That's okay. You can drive slow if you want to drive slow. There, there is a traveling lane. That's a middle lane. That far left lane, that is a passing lane. And have you ever witnessed this before? Where there's just a line of people in the passing lane. And you're like, why? I'm, I guarantee you it's one person. One person up there that's just, ah, you know, it's a nice Sunday drive. And I shake my head. And I'm like, why? What makes somebody just pull out in the fast lane? And have you ever, you can show, show this next picture. My wife sent me this picture a couple weeks ago. And I think it said something like, why, right? Under it, like, this was in her parking lot. And it was a, why? What's your motivation? Now, you may have been in a hurry. I get that. But you've got to know that the only way Heidi got into that car was through the passenger seat. Like, what, what's the motivation there? I mean, if you've got some, some tire on the white line, you're clearly just not, you're not doing well. You know, there's a reason why we do the things that we do in life. There are motivating factors for the different decisions that we make in life. There, there, there just are. Why do we do the things that we do? Today we're going to be talking about two individuals who have different motivating factors for why they do the thing. The decisions that they've made, there's different motivating factors. And we're going to be in the book of Ezra once again. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ezra. If you don't, that's okay. It will be up on the screen. Um, I am going to be reading out the New American Standard Version. Um, uh, you may have the NIV Version. Um, but we're going to be in chapter 7 today. And I want to catch you up just a little bit. If you'll allow me just to, to summarize where we've been in this series. Our series is called uh, God is Greater. Our God is Greater. Uh, because He is. You say our God is greater than what? The answer is yes. Anything. Our God is greater. We've seen that throughout the study. And while I don't get a chance to get up here every week, that's why I want to just give you a brief summary of where we've been. What we found out is leading into Ezra, we find that the people of God, the Hebrew people, they've been in captivity for 70 years. And they're in captivity uh, really because of the decisions that they've made. They fell into sin. And God said, if you fall into sin, I'm going to do this. And so God allowed them to be in captivity. But what he also told them was, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to bring you out of captivity. He made a promise. And so chapter 1, what we saw was God keeps his promises, which is huge for you and I as believers. God keeps his promises. Chapter 2, we get and, and we see this, this idea of, uh, of them being on a mission. There is a list of names in Ezra chapter 2 that just seems very random. But what we find in this list of names is we find Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in this list of names. We see his birthplace. And so what we see is our God is a God of details. He is in the details. Chapter 3, we talked about the, the Hebrew people, their passion and their perseverance. They needed passion and perseverance. Why? Because they had a task. And their task was to rebuild the temple of God. That was going to be hard. There was going to be opposition. And in chapters 4 through 6, we did it in one shot. Even though it was three chapters, what we find is there was a theme all throughout the, those three chapters. And it was this. God can take opposition and turn it into opportunity. We use the example of a butterfly. A butterfly uh, went in that chrysalis stage of life and is struggling to get out of that cocoon. But that struggle needs to happen. And God can turn that butterfly into exactly what it was meant to be. And so last time we got into chapter 7. And what we found out is we found out three things that Ezra did. What Ezra did is he studied the word of God. 
He practiced the Word of God, and then he taught the Word of God. And we found out that really, and what Ezra was doing is he was trying to bring change about to his people. We found out in our own life, there is no better way to bring about change to our world than to be committed to the Word, to studying the Word, to practicing the Word, and to teaching it. So that brings us to Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. What we're going to do is we've already understood that Ezra has been given permission to go back to the land, to, to, to go out of captivity back to, um, back to Israel. And so he's been given permission, but it's a whole lot more than Ezra. He, he, yeah, just, just go ahead. The king had more in mind for Ezra. This was an opportunity for the king to get what he wanted, but also an opportunity for Ezra and our God to get what he wanted as well. So Ezra getting ready to go on this journey. He is going to need to prove every step along the way in this journey that he has the permission from the king. And so the king is going to write him a letter. And what we know is this is a copy of the letter that was sent. And, and we know that because first, what we see is that uh, the, the, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And this letter is written in Aramaic. And also if you look at verse 11... We see that it says, now this is the copy. This is the decree of what the king is going to say. So what he starts off is he starts off by making it clear, look, this is who this letter is from. It is from King Artaxerxes, and he's sending it to Ezra. Here's what we know about King Artaxerxes. Not a whole lot. Something very interesting. It really doesn't have anything to do with anything, but his right hand was longer than his left one. Kind of interesting. But what we also know is he was a popular king. King Artaxerxes had a wife who was very popular among the people, and his people ex considered him extremely kind, a very thoughtful ruler, and he always appeared to be fair and just. And so he gives them the opportunity to go back to the land. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget what they're doing. And this is in fulfillment of what God had already promised to do. And so King Artaxerxes, he says, okay, go ahead and take whoever is willing to go with you. You see that in verse 13. So it wasn't something they had to do. It was something they were given the opportunity to do and to go back and be willing to do it. So look, he says, go ahead. Go back. But, Ezra, I have some things that I want you to do. If you look in verse 14, you see the first thing that, that uh, the king wants Ezra to do. He wants him to report back to the king. So the king is sending him, look, he's got ulterior motives, he's got other things in mind. I want you to go and I want you to send a report back. Be my eyes and my ears of what is happening there. And then if you jump to the end of this section in verses 25 to 26, you see that he was given authority. The, the, the king said to, to Ezra, look, go ahead and I want you to appoint judges. I want you to uphold the law, and I want you to enforce the law. So this trip here is not going to be any vacation for Ezra. I mean, this is not your everyday run-of-the-mill exodus from captivity. I mean, he had things he needed to do. But there's also some things that God had some things in, in store for him to do. So he's going to restore some order. He's going to report back to the king. And so the king says, look, you're going to need a few things. You're going to need some help along the way. And so he sends lots of money and riches to help to glorify and to beautify the temple of God. Look, they spent a lot of time building that temple. We talked about it. The temple was finished, but it wasn't enough that it was finished. It was time to adorn that temple. It was a time to make it beautiful and a glorious building for God, as we see in verse 16. And so that generosity from the king, it really knew no bounds. 
The king says, I'm going to give you everything that you need. Verse 17, he, he wants them to, to make the, the place look good, but he wants them to have the ability to make sacrifices, to buy bulls and rams and lambs and grain offerings and drink offerings. And verse 18, he basically says, look, whatever you need, whatever you need, just you, you're going to have it. He gives, some, uh, he gives some measurements here, 100 talents, 100 cords of wheat, 100 uh, baths of wine, 100 baths of oil. That's 3.4 metric tons of silver, 18 tons of wheat, 600 gallons of wine and oil. And this is pretty, pretty amazing what the king's doing. He's, even all the utensils that had not been brought back before, he's allowing to go back. I mean, you know, Mark Xerxes, he's pulling out all the stops. I mean, he seems like a really good guy. Verse 21, he continues and says, look, I don't even want you to be taxed. You're not even going to be taxed on everything that you do. And, 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 and verse 26, he says, look, anyone that's not going to follow what you say, you can punish him, even to death. So he's giving him a lot of things. He's letting the people of Israel worship God. He's being very generous. He seems like a good guy. Some may even look and go, man, he seems like a good Christian guy. We don't know that. Not from this, we don't. What you don't know is the way Artaxerxes made it to the throne, he killed his own brother to get to the throne. You know, on the surface, things may look good. But the appearance of being nice does not necessarily equal being right with God. So Artaxerxes, he's giving things away. He's allowing them to go back. Just go ahead, go back. But, I, but here's where the motivating factors come in. Is he try, just trying to be a nice guy? Or are there other things at work here? What makes people do the things that they do? What made the king do what he did? Look at verse 23. Here's what he says. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of God. That sounds great. So that there will not be any wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. We're getting to why he's motivated to, to give all this stuff away, to allow them to worship. It's so that the wrath will not be against the kingdom and his sons. You, you see that, right? The motivating factor here, it revolves around his desire to keep his throne and his own selfishness. You know, it, it wasn't uncommon in those days for kings to, to do similar things like this. Where they would allow people to, to worship their, their gods, their little G gods, right? And, 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 and whatever religion they wanted to do, they, they would allow it. Not to this point most of the time. Don't miss what God is working in, in, the, in the, heart, the, the, the king's heart. Don't miss that. He, he's working tremendously. But kings would do a lot of this. And they would say, oh, you worship whoever you want. And so really what they wanted to do is they just wanted to make sure their bases were covered. I mean, in the king's mind, it was business. It was money well spent because you know, they didn't want any of the power of the so-called gods to come back on them. But Artaxerxes recognized who God was. At least his power, right? He recognized his power and he, he saw the power of God and he knew, you know what? I want to appeal to God's good side to avert whatever anger there may be. He was motivated by fear. Is that, is that wrong though? That he's motivated by fear? Are, are we not told in the Bible to fear God? Hebrews 11.7 says, Noah moved with fear and prepared the ark. You better believe he had fear. 
Psalm 76, 7 says, Thou, even thou art to be feared. And who may stand in the sight when you are angry? Look, these are verses that tend to ruffle the feathers of our, of our own comfort and our own comfort, comfortable Christianity. That, oh, wait, ah, should we be afraid of God? Is God really going to be angry? Deuteronomy 4, 10. Look, God told the people of Israel, meet me at the base of the mountain. I've got something to say. And he says, the reason why I want you to meet me at the base of the mountain is so that they will learn to fear me all of their days. Psalm 96, 4. For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. How can fear be a, a bad thing? It's in the Bible. We're told to, to fear God, but of course you understand, right, that fear comes in different forms. It does. In the case of the, of the king, his fear was dread. He was just, he was scared. He was dreadful. It was kind of like when you and I don't want to do something or don't want to touch something or don't want to experience something. It could be skydiving. It could be roller coasters, snakes, crickets, spiders. Uh, you know, and lately we've been hearing, hearing a lot about clowns. You know, maybe you're afraid of clowns. Who knows? We dread these things. If you're scared of them, we dread them because of what they can do to us, right? You know, I dread... The, the skydiving, I would never do it. Why? Because the, the ground would come really, really fast and it could potentially kill me, right? It's a self-preservation fear. Nothing wrong with physical fear. And there's nothing wrong with that fear in all reality when we talk about how we view God. That, that fear part has got to be there, but as long as that's not the only fear that you have. One commentator says this, that fear must pass on to that which is higher. Here's what he says, into reverence, to trust, to love, and obedience. The fear that the king had was not a fear that led to any kind of trust. It was not a fear that led to any kind of love and certainly not obedience. You may say, well, wait, wait, wait. He, he did provide all that stuff. I mean, he gave money, he gave power, he, he, he allowed certain things to happen. But what we know is faith without works is dead and works without faith is dead. Just because someone gives money to a religious organization doesn't make them a believer. Just because someone uh, is involved in a church, may even come to church each and every Sunday, doesn't necessarily make them a believer. Perhaps there's motivating fears in our life of death. A fear of not going to heaven or a fear that what if hell is, is really right, is, is really real. Again, there's nothing wrong with fear, dread, as long as it's not the only factor of fear that we have towards God. It must move to respect. It must move to a reverence. It must move to a love. And it certainly must move, you and I, it must move to an obedience. You know, it was that fear, that reverence, that awe of who God was, that is the driving force of the next couple of verses that we are going to read as we get into verse 27. See, what we're going to see when we get here to verse 27 is, is there's, there's a switch. And there's a switch in a number of different ways. The, 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 the switch is, it marks the end of the letter from our exertion. So it, it, it goes from a different language, uh, uh, Aramaic to, to, to Hebrew. So there's a switch there. But then all of a sudden we go from hearing things in the third person to all of a sudden we now are getting things in the first person. See, at the beginning of the chapter, we're introduced to Ezra, the guy whose name is on the book. But yet we don't necessarily, we aren't getting the first person from him. And one author describes it as this, and there's no better way to describe it. He says, we are suddenly aware of Ezra the man. 
His own voice breaking into the narrative with a grateful delight which time has done nothing to diminish. He, Ezra, will take up the history himself to the end of chapter 9. And Nehemiah, like him, which we're going to move on into Nehemiah, will do most of his own narrative in the next book, sprinkling his story and even more vivid interjections and asides. So the switches here are pretty significant. But here is what is even more significant, is the reaction of Ezra to this letter. That's the most significant part about what we see next. Look at his reaction. It's, he's having a reaction to all the king had said, the money he was providing, that the ability to have free reign and to do what he needed to do. And what does he say? He says, blessed be the Lord. In the NIV as you're reading it says, praise be to the Lord. It's a reaction and it means, here's what it means. It means to kneel. It means to kneel in an act of adoration. He is absolutely floored at what God has done through the, the, the heart of the king. He's, he, he's amazed to, to get the permission to go back. But not only just the permission, he's got everything. Everything is taken care of. Everything he needs. All the money. Everything. He's in awe of what God is doing. And he recognized it. And he also sees this. He sees that it wasn't the king that had such a great heart. It was God It says it, he put such a thing as this in his heart. See, he recognized that it was a sovereign hand of God that brought all this to fruition. One author says this, Ezra didn't strategize to accomplish his goals through espionage, through an armed revolt or peaceful protest. Ezra set his heart to do three things, study and do and teach the, the word of God, which we talked about. God gave him the wisdom that comes from the word, and Ezra made a request that the king granted and Ezra knows who has done the work. And he blesses God. And, he, and because of all that God had accomplished. See, here's what Ezra does. Is Ezra recognizes something that you and I need to recognize on a daily basis. And then that is our God is a sovereign God. I'm not sure we recognize that enough on a daily basis. I want to take you to Isaiah 40 that really beautifully illustrates this. Yeah, I believe I have it up on the screen. Verse 12 says, and this is Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out at the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? Verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary, and to him, he who lacks might, he increases power. Verse 30, though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait upon the Lord, you know this, will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. See, do, do you recognize, do you recognize just who God is? Do you recognize that he's a sovereign God? That, that means he's overall, in all, he, he is in control of all things. Do we recognize that in our lives? You know, the very God who can take the, 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 the waters in his very own hand and measure them. Somehow we think the God that can do that can't handle the situation that we're in, whether it's in our job. Perhaps we think that the, the, the God who can weigh the mountains on a scale isn't big enough to handle the, the relationship situations that I've got going on. 
Do, do we recognize how sovereign he is? Do we recognize that our God sits above all things? He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He doesn't grow weary. We can go to him for strength no matter what we need. He is God. But do we recognize that? Do we recognize that on a daily basis? He is sovereign in our job, in our finances, in our family. And by the way, he does not make mistakes. Our God is in control. Proverbs 21.1 reiterates this. A king's heart is like the streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Ezra recognized it. And he recognized that what was happening was less about him and more about God. He says the God who never changes. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the God, as he puts in the scripture, the God of our fathers. See, Ezra realizes that it is God that has put these things in the king's heart. And he also realizes that in verse 28, God has extended loving kindness to him. In the NIV, it says that he extended his good favor. King James, New King James Version says he extended mercy. It's all the same Greek word. It's hesed. And it refers to love. But see, this loving kindness is not just any love. It is a faithful love. It is the, the quality that honors a covenant through thick and through thin. And of course, we know about the covenant God made with Abraham. We know that he reaffirmed it to his sons and, and Jacob, whose name changed to Israel. It was a covenant that, 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 that brought about protection. It was a covenant that brought about blessing. It was a covenant that brought about blessings for the families of all the earth through the person of Jesus Christ. See, this love was more than just love. As Walford in his commentary says, it means covenantial love. A love born out of loyalty to a commitment. You know, it's that love that should motivate us. Should be our motivating factor in life. It is that love that caused the psalmist in Psalm 136 to write that psalm. And by the way, we actually sang a part of that psalm today. The first song that we sang talking about his love endures forever. You know, there's 26 verses in Psalm 136. We're not going to read them all. They're not going to be all on the screen. It's a lot. But in, in each and every single verse, it talks about his love. The psalm speaks of how good his mercy and his great wonders are. His love endures forever. His wisdom, his creation, the exodus from Egypt, his love is everlasting. He is strong. He divided the Red Sea. He redeems his people. His loving kindness is eternal. His mercy endures forever. His loyal love endures for all time. Look, it's that same love that was spoken of in Genesis 3.15, the very first prophetic utterance of Jesus Christ. Is that love that brought Jesus to this earth to, to, to be obedient even until death. Is that love that says to you as a believer, to each one of you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. It's that love that says, you know what, once you are in the hand of God, once you are in my hand, God says there's nothing that can, that can take you. Nothing. Nothing on this earth. Nothing that is not on this earth. Nothing can take you and separate you from the love of Christ. That is the love that we need to recognize in our own life. Do we recognize it? Where would we be without that love? Our God is a loving God and he keeps his promises. And of course you understand what Ezra is doing here. He, he recognized what God has done. He sees it. And Ezra begins 
to worship. He said, blessed be the Lord. Praise be the Lord. When he sees what he has done, he contemplates the very nature of God. And when he processes in in his mind the sovereignty of his God, something happens in him and he begins to worship. You've got to understand, the very act of worship, there are two things that happen. And it first must be a recognition. There must be a recognition for Ezra. It was a recognition of what God had accomplished and how God had orchestrated this entire exodus from Babylon. How he had worked in the king's heart. How he provided all the things necessary that Ezra needed to do. See, Ezra recognized that. He was well aware of who God was. That is the first part of worship. And I wonder, do we recognize God working in our lives? We can get so bogged down with this thing called life and it gets so hard and so difficult that the only thing we can recognize is our own problems. But do we recognize the sovereignty of God in our lives? Do we recognize that He is in control? Do we appreciate what He does in our lives? And when we do, do we acknowledge it? Because when we acknowledge it, something happens or something should happen inside each one of us. See, worship is much more than just what we do on a Sunday morning. It's much more than singing or giving or listening. All those are aspects of worship. But see, worship begins with a recognition and it's got to move to a response. Worship always moves us to an action. Look at how Ezra responds. Verse 28. Thus... I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra is at a place of recognition. He realizes what has happened because of Almighty God. And when he realizes that, it instantly leads him into action. Look at the verbs in this verse. He gathered men to him so that he could go. See, Ezra had a job to do. Ezra had a call to fulfill. See, his job, this is this. Ezra's job was to the king. Yes, it was. But his call was to the eternal king. Ezra's job was to report back to the king, to set up uh, and uphold the law. But his call was to study the word of God and to teach the word of God. His call was to bring honor and glory to God through all things. And when he would fulfill that call, he's able to fulfill his job. See, God had a plan for Ezra. He's got a plan for Ezra, and that involved him fulfilling this plan and following our God so that he can bring him glory. Of course, you realize, God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for my life. And as a believer, a follower of God, someone who's put their faith and their trust in who Jesus is, is and who he was, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, and that he is in heaven waiting for us now. When we believe in him, that makes us a believer. He has a plan for each one of your lives, and that plan involves a call. And that call is not just for me, it's not just, it's for every believer, and that call is to bring him glory and honor in all things. It's not to get caught up in the normal motivation of society that says, I want, I want, I must have, me, me, me. But recognizing, recognizing the power of God in your life, who brought you salvation, and to realize that that call is so much better than anything that could be offered in this world. See, that was where Ezra was. That's where Ezra was. He was given many things. Riches, treasure, and power. They were given to him by the king to do a job. And in that job, God had a call for his life. 
That was to bring him honor and glory in everything that he did. The king gave him permission, not because he was a devout follower of God, but because God put it in his heart. And he did it for, the, the, the king did it for selfish reasons. That was his motivating factor. But when Ezra got this letter, he realized God for who he was. Sovereign king. And it led him to worship it led him to recognize God and to respond to his greatness by taking action and leading his people back into the land and fulfilling the promise that God had for them. So I wonder, you and I, what are our motivating factors in our life? Is it only the, the gaining of material possessions and wealth? And notice I said only because material possessions, well, not bad. Or, is your motivating factor in life God's glory. As a believer, bring glory to the one who made you, who died for you, who sustains you, who has a place for you in heaven, brings glory to him. Shouldn't bring glory to him, shouldn't that be your motivating factor? That takes place in the act of worship, which is recognition of who he is and what he has done. And that response always calls to action. You know, that action can take place wherever you are. It can. God has you where you are for a reason in your life. God has called you to that place for a reason. You're, you may have a job. And your job may be, I mean, it could be anything. It could be a school teacher, bus driver, lawyer, dentist, handyman, architect, nurse, truck driver, stay-at-home mom or dad. That may be your job. But your call is to glorify God in all things and to share him with everyone that you come into contact. That is your call. That is the action that no matter where you are should be taking place on a daily basis, no matter what job you're in, whether you feel like you're stuck there or whether you're not. Look, his glory, his honor, his praise, his love, those have got to be the motivating factors for the actions that you take in your life. The sovereign love of God should always lead us, us as believers, to a place of worship, recognizing who he is and responding in action. So here it is. You know the call. What's your action going to be? You know the call in your life is to bring glory to God in all things. So what's your action going to be? What's your action going to be when you walk out of here and somebody is sitting in the slow lane or the fast lane going slow? What's your action going to be when someone questions you about your faith and wants to know just a little bit more about it? And you're like, man, I don't know if I want to step up. I don't know if I want to you know, put myself out there. But God is saying, you know what? I have a call for your life. Answer the call. What's your action going to be? What's your action going to be tomorrow morning when you wake up and it's dark and it's early and it may be raining, it may not, and you, you face difficulties in your job? What's your action going to be? Is your motivating factor going to be, I want to bring glory to, my, to God, or is it I want to bring wrath upon whoever is making my day difficult? What's our action going to be when we have challenges with our family? When our kids, man, hey, it's just like you don't even know who they're listening to. You don't know what they're doing. They don't listen to half the stuff you say. Well, what's your motivation going to be? Is it just so they obey, just to obey so they can get out of your hair? Or is it because I want to glorify God? I want to, I want to bring my family to know God even more. What's our actions going to be when we have problems with our finances? We're losing the house. We're losing the job. There's so many things that you want to do just in and of yourself. But 
is you're actually going to be, I want to, I want to glorify God in all things. I want to show him off to everybody. What's your motivating factor in life? The sovereign love of God should always lead us to a place of worship, recognizing who he is and responding in action. You and I can do it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it. It's my prayer for you as we close this morning. Let's pray. Our God, we recognize that we, we can't do things on our own, Father. We realize that this life is going to bring us down. This life is going to frustrate us. Or we may be, feel like we're stuck in a job. We may feel like we're having problems in finances or relationships, Father. Lord, but our job, that's what that is, a job. But our call, our call is to glorify you in all things. And therefore, we're going to do our job. We're going to do it well. We're going to do it for your glory, not for anybody else's. Father, I pray that as we sit and we hear about how awesome you are. And when we dig into the scriptures and we look at passages like Isaiah 40 and Psalm 136 and we understand, man, your love is everlasting. Your love is amazing. Your love is what has set us free from sin. Lord, when we recognize that, Lord, may we come to a place where we respond, where we worship you in spirit and in truth and in action, Lord. Our response in worship should always lead to an action in one way or another. Father, let our actions be glorifying to you, and they, may they be motivated by your sovereign love. We are so grateful for who you are, and we're so grateful for the opportunity that we have to live for you, and we pray for your strength. I pray for your strength in each one of our lives here this morning, that as we leave out these doors, that we can be changed by your word, by your word, not anybody else's, 